The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, take a break from your Halo 3 marathon and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 278 with guest Ellie Lopian, recorded live Monday, September 24th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, bringing world-class expert-led training in C-Sharp, ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, Team System, and Workflow Foundation, on-site to your development team. Details online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who says computers aren't really intelligent, they just think they are, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's our Thursday show. This is Carl Franklin. I'm here with Richard Campbell. Happy Thursday to you, Richard. Thank you. We should be on airplanes on our way home from Bulgaria right now. And let me tell you, I had a great time. I know I did, too. <laughs> I think. <laughs> we'll find out next Tuesday. <laughs> we'll be out. You'll find out next Tuesday how great a time we really had. Right. Yeah, we could be, uh, well, no, I'm not even going to say that. Don't even speculate, man, because all of those things are possible. I was going to say we could be like Stephen Forte and be kicked out of the country, but that probably won't happen. We're a bit more civilized than our New York friend there. Oh, no, we're far more likely to be stranded somewhere. (laughs) All I'm saying is I didn't fly through Newark, so I should be okay. (laughs) All righty. Oh, man. Next time I go to New York, I'm going to get a Segway so I can get from one flight to the other on time. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right. Enough of that. So let's uh, get into Better Know Framework. Okay, Richard. Uh, I'm going to talk about a namespace today that we've mentioned on the show, but nobody really has talked about it in depth. Oh, and it's system.io.isolated storage. Okay. Isolated storage is one of those uh, tools where you can store secrets on the machine and get this. Nobody can find them. <laughs> Nobody? Not even you? I was going to say, you know, why not just put stuff in the registry? Nobody ever looks in there either. So. 
<laughs> oh, no, no, no. Write it to an INI file in System 32. So I don't know what the level of secrecy around isolated storage is, but apparently you're supposed to be able to write to a file or a file stream not knowing where it is, but just accessing it with credentials and things. Right. And nobody knows how to get at the actual data except the operating system. Right. Is this even possible? In theory, but you know, the main thing here is that abstract interface. So it's not up to you. The operating system decides. No, I know, but couldn't somebody decompile Windows and figure out what they're doing? And I mean, isn't all code essentially susceptible to that? In theory. Yeah. Okay, but this well, is like a club, right? At least it's hard enough. <laughs> you might want to Google uh, isolated storage hacked before <laughs> you use it. How cynical uh, are you? I'd be a little cynical just because, you know, we, we know, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's been – I haven't heard anything about it being hacked. I guess it's pretty safe. But uh, anyway, in systemio.isolatedstorage, there's an isolated storage file stream class. And uh, this is essentially what you use for low-level access to the, to the file stream. And uh, there's a great example in c and VB in the documentation for that particular class. There really isn't one for isolated storage or isolated storage file, which are other classes in there. But that's essentially the idea. And, and uh, you know, I want to write to this data, and I don't want anybody to be able to access it but me and my code. Right. There you go. So, Richard, you got an email for us? I do indeed. And it's a callback to an earlier show. And this is from Jim Holmes, and it begins, Guys, love the MVP show with Scott Kate. I was lucky enough to get him to speak at the .NET user group I helped run in Dayton, Ohio, and his session was terrific. MVP isn't just about making your software more testable or easing the pain of plugging in new functionality. It's also about having readable, maintainable code that's a lot easier to grok when you've been away from it for a period of time. I also like the fundamental principle that using multiple presenters on a view gives you great separation of concerns. It's a great way to adhere to the single responsibility principle where something should have only one reason to change. Kind of like musicians. <laughs> I was thinking bass player the whole time. Single responsibility. Play bass. That's all we need. Show up. Play bass. Great show. Jim Holmes. <laughs> That's right. What do you call a bass player that broke up with his girlfriend? Uh, homeless? Nice. And what did the drummer get on his SATs? What? Drool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, we're having fun. All right, Richard. Uh, Announcements-wise, if you're not going to uh, Dev Connections November 5th uh, through 9th. Where we're going to be. Where we're going to be. You might want to check out the Patterns and Practices Summit, which is in Redmond. And uh, the URL for that is pnpsummit.com. Keith, please, Guided Design hosts this. Keynotes by Anders Heilsberg, Steve McConnell, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Lamb. Wow. Very cool. Architecture, patterns, and practices. And uh, also they're hosting an evening with Microsoft Research, which should be a lot of fun. I know you went to one of those before. I did indeed, and it is quite an experience to get a look into what Microsoft Research is up to. The diversity of projects is unbelievable. That's great. Also, if you haven't answered the question of the week for the TechEd 2007 Europe Barcelona contest, or whatever the heck it is we're calling it this year, go to .netrocks.com slash Barcelona, 
And the question for this week is, what is the only browser-based code technology that Jack Harrington doesn't work with by his own admission? If you think you know the answer, go sign up and try to win a brain bag and a chance for a 24-inch Dell monitor. And if that isn't enough, how would you like to go to New York City for a year and work and live in an apartment in Manhattan rent-free for the year and work with a bunch of really creative people in a fascinating uh, environment and uh, have a good time? In New York City. Come on, the Big Apple. Yeah. Never been a better time to go to New York. So if you're interested in that deal, go to shrinkster.com slash KH6. And Infusion is also hiring in their Boston office and in their London office, and I believe up in Canada, too. I'm not sure, but uh, you might want to talk to them about that. Right. Okay, Richard, let's talk about TypeMock. Ellie Lopian is the founder of TypeMock Limited, www.typemock.com a technology company specializing in tools that help developers test their code. The first product is typemock.net that helps isolate software components for simpler testing. Ellie has 17 years of diverse commercial experience, including applications from embedded systems to gaming, large facility management to agile process implementations. Ellie is equally proficient in Java, C Sharp, and C++. Ellie has helped large teams transit from waterfall development process to a more agile one, managing the process both on the technical side and on the people side. Ellie co-led and spoke at the Agile Israel Users Group, Israel's first and only Agile dedicated users group. Ellie's blog is at www.elilopian.com. Welcome, Ellie. Welcome. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. You know, I don't know, Richard, but it seems to me like all the, the the Agile stuff is really happening in Israel, you know? like You're right. I mean, everyone we talk to from Israel, we've talked to quite a few of them, are very focused on Agile processes. Specifically, I'm thinking about Udi Dahan and Ayande Rahin and Roy Osharov. Um, yeah, we've had all those guys on, and I guess... Uh, well, they were the agile posse at DevTeach in Montreal. All right. Do you guys, do you hang around with this clan, uh, Ellie? Well, actually, we don't actually hang around with this clan, but, but I guess Israel is, uh, Israel is considered one of the technology countries and, and we actually deal with technology. I think the percentage of the population here actually uh, are writing code and, and startups uh, is, is quite high. And one of the things that we find what they're doing is, is finding new ways to, to do stuff that are better. And that's where innovation comes in. And lots of uh, uh, developers uh, see the value of uh, agile development. It seems like a very entrepreneurial culture, too. Lots of little businesses and innovation. Yeah, there, there's some uh, big bits uh, of innovation, too. But I think uh, uh, technology and software in Israel has been one of the, uh, the major uh, changes in Israel in the last uh, few decades, and it shows on the map, it shows with the innovation, it shows with the companies that want to be here and companies that are, that are investing in Israel. All right, so let's talk about mock objects, first of all. We have uh, discussed mock objects a little bit on the show, and anybody who's doing agile development and test-driven development at least knows what they are if they're not using them, but uh, let's uh, let's just start with the idea of of what a, what a mock object is, and, and I really want to just right away address some of the... Um, 
the reasons why people aren't using mock objects, you know, sort of what the, the, the stone throwers say. And then we'll talk about uh, the wonderful benefits of mock objects and your uh, type mock product. Okay, that's fine. Um, basically, I think there's one big major uh, problem with um, tech-driven development and going to the agile agile world. And uh, that big thing is uh, is unit testing. I mean, all developers I've seen do know the value of, of unit testing, and they want to see that their code is good. But it is really, really hard to to write these unit tests. And um, I've seen it in many, many different groups. And, and once you come in and you say, listen, guys, let's do some unit tests. And they're like, yeah, okay, let's do unit tests. And we have this N unit and J unit, and we have all these tools that make it easier for you to do unit testing. And developers are really happy, and they hype up. And then when they try to actually write these tests, uh, they they bang into a, a brick wall. It's just impossible to, to write these tests. And many of the of the groups that I try to transit uh, into a more agile uh, uh, development, into a way where into into a code base where it's easy to refactor and it's easy to do um, lots of agile practices, uh, they just didn't manage to to hurt that wall. They just didn't manage to hurt that wall. They they tried all kind of different ways and they tried to refactor the code beforehand, and and that didn't work because there was no test uh, to refactor the code, and the design started to to change. And lots of architects felt that their job is being uh, taken away from them because now everything that they say and they have learned is, is not is not uh, uh, it can't be used anymore, and it causes lots and lots of problems. So basically, all these groups that did want to become agile just couldn't become or agile in the in the XP way in, in the in the in the practices of uh, of unit testing. One thing I just picked up um, that hit me like a ton of bricks in the head from what you just said is that, you know, developers who get a little piece of the Agile puzzle struggle hard because they don't have all the pieces. And it seems to me the people who are most effective, like, you know, the, we've done um, DNR TVs with John Paul Boudou, you know, for instance. He's got uh, the whole suite of of tools. He's got ReSharper for refactoring, He's and, and it also writes his tests for him. He's got mock objects. He's got... The whole suite of things, and it, do you agree that you sort of need to take that holistic approach to agile development? Otherwise, you're sort of only going to get a little piece of what could be a very aggravating experience. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't see see it as a black and white uh, um, uh, issue. I don't think that uh, that you either take the whole cake or, or you just or you don't get anything. I think there's lots and lots of gray in between. There's lots of gray in. in in uh, what part of Agile are you going to do? Are you going to be more customer-oriented? Are you going to have uh, smaller iterations? Are you going to allow uh, refactoring? Are you going to are you going to do unit tests? And each one of these has a return of uh, investment and, and um, things that you can show the management uh, um, what's good, and you can slowly, slowly uh, become a more Agile uh, environment. And, and actually, the actual Agile environments themselves say that you don't have to take all these practices. And not only that, one of the practices is to learn about your process and to and to customize it to your actual uh, um, environment. And this changes from, from different environments. Different environments, it, it completely changes. And in one environment, uh, the customer facing can be most, the most important. And in another environment, it's actually the quality of the code that's, uh, that's uh, has the, the biggest return on investment. Uh, and as I was saying before, and I want to go back to that uh, to the question you asked, 
I think that many of these groups, especially when it's talking about quality of the code, they put in these these uh, QA groups. And there's a, a really nice tension between the QA groups and the development groups. But what what, it, what we saw happened uh, over the time was that, that developers, because they knew the QA groups were there, they decided to write code which was even less quality because they used to write code, they started writing code, and they said, okay, we can write the code. The QA is going to test the QA. We just finish this feature, and let's, let's give it to the QA to check. And and this is something that I see has been happening in many, many places that actually implement quality uh, teams and, and putting quality into the um, agenda. And what happens is the opposite. That developers make less quality code because they have this uh, security net, or, uh, net. They have this security net of uh, QA uh, uh, guys who test the code. And this is why uh, unit testing is really important to be part of this process because you want to have quality before you give it to the QA. But bug in QA costs 10 times as much than the bug found in in a development uh, uh, time. And, and this is really important, uh, an important issue as well. What are some of the, what are some of the ways that you, uh, you recommend people use their technologies or tools or th- thoughts or processes people use to, to help them in that regard? Um, well, basically, there the are quite a few tools out there that, that can help them in this regard. The tools that can automate uh, uh, the web server and the tools uh, to make the build uh, faster and there's tools to to write the unit test, and there's tools to mock uh, different parts of the, of the system out. Um, one of the reasons that I decided to to um, to found TypeMock is that I saw that there was one major uh, um, barrier to, uh, into writing these unit tests, and this is the isolation barrier. I'll say that again. I found that there was one major barrier uh, in uh, making these unit tests, and that's the isolation barrier. The isolation barrier is I want to test my little unit. I don't want to be connected to the whole rest of the system. And the system, especially with software, is really, really big. If I take a small example, I like to talk about the, a motor, an engine of a car. And I'm a little developer writing the carburetor of the car, and the carburetor gets oxygen, and he gets petrol, and, and he, he mix it together. That's, that's, that's what it does. And basically, as a program, I have to put it in the car. I can't test it alone. I have to put it inside the car, fix it up, and turn the engine on to see how it works. And that's not testing in isolation. That's what the QA does. But I'm I'm a developer. I want to test that my carburetor is working, my unit is working well. So I have to isolate it. I have to take it out of the engine and test it uh, in isolation and see that it works. And then I can say, okay, my carburetor works well, even if there's no petrol coming in, even though there's too much oxygen, it doesn't explode. Let's put it into the engine, and now we can start uh, doing the QA tests. And this is this is the main barrier. Once it's easy for developers to isolate their code. Then they get, then they, then they understand the unit testing. Then it's really easy and it's really simple for them. And we've seen this uh, all over the board. We've seen it uh, in the Carillion with, with Scott Hanselman. His teams suddenly understood how to unit test once they found out how easy it is to isolate their code. So, so uh, we really haven't defined mock objects yet. We'll just for the total, un, totally uninitiated. Let's uh, give a definition of mock objects, just being sort of dummy objects that you can write tests against that uh, just return arbitrary values, maybe, or or they don't really do any of the meat, but they uh, provide the same interfaces as your real objects. Is that a fair elevator speech for a mock object? Um, I actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't define it that way. That that would be the, the old way of defining it. Oh, good. I think the, I think the mock objects is basically. Uh, just the means of isolation. The mock, we don't 
the mark average is not important. What's important is what we're isolating. So the, the mark average are just our means of isola isolation. We want to isolate our little unit of code to test it. So we have to mark whatever, whatever around. It doesn't necessarily, necessarily have to be an object. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, an interface. We want to mark. We actually, we want to isolate our, our piece of code. So that's why we mark everything around it. So mocking then is what we're really trying to find, which is to providing a, a sort of a, a, a fake out environment for the testers, for the unit testing that's software. Right. It's providing that, that isolated environment for the test where we can, we can change or we can fake different uh, values in that isolated uh, area. Mock objects have always been about testing, but I've usually thought about them in the point of view of, I'm going to use this until the real object is ready. But it sounds to me like you're saying, keep the mock object around so that you can isolate each test to a specific piece of code. That, that is correct. That is correct. But but, but you, we're going back to the old definition of mock object, where we think of it as an object in the, in the system where we can actually keep it and, and move it around. But in the new definition of mock objects as the isolating, we don't really have to have that object around the system. We can have real objects around the system, and we just mock those those real objects. We we don't have to keep them around. We don't have to, to pass them through the system. We can just isolate our code. Ellie, i got to tell you, I'm a little confused. Can you elaborate a little bit of what you mean by um, isolation and, and what what you're really talking about here? Okay, again, we have, we have that little piece of code that, that we're doing in and that piece of code calls another piece of code, and we don't we don't want to, our piece of code to call that other piece of code. Not for our testers. That's not important right now. So we have we have a, a piece of code which calls a logging system. Okay, and then we have this logging system does something. We don't we don't care what it does. It's not important for our code. We want to test our little code. What does it transfers money from one bank account to another? And we want to make sure that our bank account transfers the, the money correctly. It doesn't it doesn't transfer the money and it doesn't put it into the transferred account and, and not take it off the transfer the other account. We want to make sure that it works it works properly. Or it also logs these things into the system because the bank needs it. But that's not important for our tests. Okay, we don't have a log object here. We have a log service. We have we, our, our code calls some kind of a logging service in some kind of a way. And what we do, we want to isolate this logging service. So what we say is, okay, let's isolate it. Let's mark it. It doesn't. It's not an object that we're passing around. It's not something that we're that we're keeping around the system. All we what we're doing, we're telling the system, okay, next time the logging is going to be called, don't really call it. Let's mark it. Let's pretend it doesn't exist. That's basically what we're doing. If we take the example of the carburetor, we're putting a tap there. We're, the, the carburetor is still in the engine. It's still there, but we have a, a, a tap where this is what type mock does. What mocking does. We have a tap, and we say, okay, instead of using the real uh, petrol, uh, the, the real gas, uh, tube, we're gonna use a fake uh, gas tube and we're gonna, we're gonna know exactly how much gas to put in so we can test our, our carburetor. Okay, let me uh, see if I understand. So, you have an object that transfers some money to a bank account and then it logs it, and this is the real object. Now, if you wanna test that object, you have to mock out the logging syst uh, the, the logging service, so you would write a service that simply, uh, doesn't do the logging, but it looks exactly to your code, like like the logging service, you'd basically just write that. That's exactly that's exactly correct. Uh, the, the actual code really calls the logging system. It actually calls the logging system. This logging system is being told, "Don't work now. Become isolated," and it just returns back to the to the calling code. It doesn't do anything. 
And the reason to do that is so that there's no chance that any errors can be generated by the logging service and testing? The reason is to isolate your code. We don't want to, yeah, we don't want to have errors from the, from the logging system. We're not testing the logging system right now. Right. What we're doing now, we want to isolate a little piece of code. We want to test that our logic works. I see. So by, by isolating it, you know that if there are errors, they didn't come from that system. They didn't come exactly. from that service. Exactly. Okay. How? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I, my, I'm presuming that I would just create an alternative logging service that doesn't do anything, like exactly. just provide the interfaces. But you're saying I don't have to do that. There's another way. Exactly. So this is this is what this is what happened basically. This is what the TDD guys basically thought of. They said, okay, we 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 want to test a little system, and it's becoming really complex because we want to test one piece of object, but that's connected to all these. The whole car is connected to the whole system, and we can't really test a little logic. And our unit tests are becoming functional tests and becoming system tests. So we need a way to isolate it. So the first uh, thing that people, that the TDD guys said, okay, let's create a, another object, another logging system. And instead of using the real logging system, we'll use a fake logging system. And this basically led to what we know as the dependency injection. We have one logging system, which is an object, and we want to change it. We want our code to call not that logging uh, uh, system. We want to call it a fake logging system. So we have to change that logging system somehow in the system. So now our design changes so we can allow uh, this fake object to be injected into our code, and we can use it for our tests. This is what happened. This is what people have been saying. Uh, and have been, uh, 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 this is what the TDDs were preaching to do. This is what, uh, this is what the, this was the way that uh, you isolate your code. But this, but this is not doable in, in, in real systems. Or maybe some systems that are, are built from the, from the beginning are doable, but there are many, many systems that is not, it is not doable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking in the context of existing software and I want to retrofit unit tests in. Uh, how much code do I have to touch? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I always have the red flag going off in my head that, well, if I'm, as uh, soon as I start mucking with this stuff and modifying it, it's really, really important to keep track of, what was changed, and how do I undo those changes? Do I fork the code? Do I, you, you know what I'm saying, just for the purposes of a test? And how do I know what I'm running against if I'm running against mock objects or, or regular objects? Or, I mean, you know, the whole management of that process has got to be absolutely key. Um, I'm not quite quite getting it. I think it's really, really simple to 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 know which parts of the system are marked for each test. We have a little test and we, we say before the test which parts of the system are going to be isolated. We run our test scenario and we have our results. But it's not that complex. But I guess the thing I'm trying to get to here is that you're not altering my source code to be able to do the testing. I don't want to put any code into my app that is specifically related to testing. Yeah, that was basically what I was getting at. Is that is that So that's not happening is what you're saying. No, basically it it can happen, but we let's let's see using type mode that that doesn't happen. Oh, good. Um, and many um, this is one solution that can be used to isolate uh, your code. Again, that that the one isolation way is to inject fake objects into the code, and another way is to fake the code without introducing fake objects. Doesn't sound very good. No, no, I get it. I, you know, and I'm beginning to get your whole mantra of isolation here because, you know, if you're diagnosing a problem, um, 
on the PC, it's so hard because things are so abstract, but, it, you know, software. But if it's a hardware problem, you know what to do. I mean, you 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 put you take out the video card that you suspect and you put in another video card. You isolate it to the video card to see if that's the problem, if it's not booting, for example. You know, you, you have you, you swap out parts with things that you know um, are are not going to give you a problem. So uh, is that sort of a good analogy? That's, that's an excellent analogy. That's an excellent analogy. So the big challenge is how do I determine all the dependencies for a given unit of code? Oh, no, I think the big challenge is uh, how do you do that? How do you, how do you fake those objects right. without uh, injecting a different object? I think that, that's, that's the big challenge. Uh, that, that once you have that piece of code, it's quite simple to know which, uh, which parts of the code you want to isolate, uh, which parts of the code you don't want to isolate. The big problem is how do you do this? How, how do you, how can you isolate a piece of code if you, if you don't have the technology to, uh, to change the behavior of the code? Okay, I, I smell a type mock coming up here in the conversation. I, I guess that's what we're going to talk about now. So let, let's talk about type mock. First of all, um, is this a is this a commercial product? Yeah, TypeMock is a commercial pro, uh, product. Uh, as okay. I said, it, it came from from the need to uh, be able to isolate uh, a piece of code without uh, sure. changing the design of the code. So, what is the user experience of of TypeMock.net? Is it a is it a plugin for Visual Studio? Is it a standalone app? How what, what what's the experience like? Okay. If you, uh, the, the experience is it's actually a, uh, it's an installation. You install it on, on your computer, and uh, it has uh, an add-in to Visual Studio, and it uh, it's uh, it's an API. Basically, you use the API. It works. It integrates with uh, test-driven and uh, NUnit and MSUnit and uh, and with uh, different open-source, free and and commercial uh, code coverage tools. And it's quite simple to use once once you install it. You just um, write, use the API to to tell the test what kind of uh, isolation we're going to use, what kind of uh, wh- how we're going to isolate our piece of code, and, and how our isolation is going to behave. Uh, and you run the test, and, and that's it. It's basically quite simple. So it basically just looks at all of the code in your system and and mocks it all up automatically. Or is there any tweaking involved? Again, basically, there is a tweaking, if you, if you call it tweaking. The developer has to tell the test or tell the system uh, what kind of, what, which parts of the code are going to be isolated. I see. So if we take the example of, of a bank transfer object, we're going to have to tell, before the test, we're going to have to say, okay, we don't want any logging here. Any calls to logging, just, just fake them. I see. So every at every interface, I guess you would say, you have an option to say, uh, mock this, don't mock that. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I would call it every every, every call. I wouldn't call it interface because we don't. Okay. It doesn't necessarily have to be an interface, but basically what you're saying is right here. Every every piece of code you can tell. Uh, every call to another another uh, another object. That's sort of what I meant. Interface with a lowercase i. Yeah, lowercase lowercase i. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where does uh, the relationship between something like type mock and n unit live? Does it replace the functionality of n unit? Oh, no, no. All these tools, they work together. The, um, these tools are complementary tools. They work together. You, you need you need a framework to, to run the test, and that can be either NUnit, MSUnit, or, or MBUnit. Right. And you need a, you need a framework to, to do the coverage, which could be 
uh, Visual Studios coverage, and it can be end cover, and it can be uh, cover coverage eye, uh, or, or any other cover, code coverage tool. And you need some kind of way to run it, which is either through uh, Visual Studio or test driven or, or command line. And you need a way to isolate your your code, so it's easy to test. And you need some kind of a isolation um, software. And that's where Typemark comes in. So you basically need all these tools together to to but that's going to allow you to uh, unit test your code easy, easily. So, so you do the um, isolation definition when you actually write your test. So if you're testing a particular call, that's where you say, uh, I want this to be isolated or I don't want it to be isolated. Or, or is there a different levels of isolation? There's also different levels of isolation, but what you say is basically the, that's, that's the base of everything. I see. That's the basic. That's that's when you say, okay, this, these are the pieces of code that we want to isolate, and then you just run the test. Of course, that that features for for enterprise users and uh, where you can mock a whole chain, a whole chain of calls. If you have uh, service dot get uh, get the service dot uh, uh, connect to server dot do something, you can mock that whole chain of code in one go. Okay. Because that's what you really want to isolate. That's that's kind of what I mean by levels of isolation. How far down the stack do you go, right? And so do you do you do that at the at the one call or do you have to write tests for each level? Well if you're using the the, the community then you're gonna have to do you're gonna have to isolate each level. Uh, but once you get into into the enterprise and, and, and professional edition then that's really easy. You just you just do it in one go. And okay. You isolate it in one one command. Wow, great. So that's the distinction of the different versions. That's one of the distinctions between the different versions. Yeah. Obviously you pay for the you know, for the convenience of not having to do all that. That's that's right. Yeah. Now there are other mocking solutions out there, but I think for the most part they're they're like SourceForge projects, right? Like NMock? Yeah, there's NMock and there's RhinoMocks. And uh, you can hand you can hand write your mocks. Sure. It's not that it's not that difficult to write your own mock. But these mocks also again they they they're actually mock object frameworks, and you have to have an object, and you have to find a way to to pass that object to the tested code. And that gets us back to this whole refactoring for testing issue. Exactly. And I get the sense that you put a fair bit of effort into avoiding needing to refactor for testing. Um, I, yes. Yeah. We put a lot of, a lot of effort into. Avoiding refactoring for for testing, uh, we I personally believe that uh, each developer should have the freedom to to design his code as he wishes. I'm sure that he knows much better than, than the mocking framework how his code is supposed to be designed. Uh, and uh, this is what Python does: it gives, gives the developers the freedom um, to write the code uh, any way they feel. And that that could be problematic because some developers might not design it correctly, but uh, I believe that developers uh, want to have good software and they want to write uh, code well, and I'm just giving the tool to, to be able to do that. So are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates, RAD controls for ASP.NET, RAD controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed RAD controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. 
Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of RAD controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, RAD controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. Uh, okay, so I have a potential monkey wrench question here, and that is, with dynamic languages, when, you know, you can mock a non-dynamic object pretty easily. You, you, uh, you basically just create an empty shell of this object, and that, you know, it is what it is. But with a dynamic object that can change and morph and properties get added and methods get removed and objects get created, uh, is that particularly difficult when it comes to mocking? I mean, you know, does that make your job as typemock.net more difficult? Uh, no, I think it actually makes my job uh, easier. Uh, I think that it's, it's really simple to, to mock these objects. It's, it's simpler than, than in uh, static uh, languages. Uh, and and uh, again, my, my job is to try and make it easier for developers to write unit tests. I know that, but if you're, if you're mock, trying to mock up an object that's dynamic and it could change within the course of a call, how do you, how do you prepare for that? Since you, a mock object is essentially a static object, isn't it? No, the mock objects themselves are, are dynamic. They, they work dynamically uh, within a definition code you can define before they actually exist how they're going to behave. Oh, okay. Uh, so this is this is uh, this is where the power of, of uh, isolating comes. Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, I can see we can see that we're we're working now on on the type mock for for Arcas and .NET three point five and. And there's loads of, of stuff, uh, dynamic stuff, uh, there in, in .NET 3.5, and we have uh, uh, anonymous types, and, and we have extension methods, uh, in different, different ways to, that are more dynamic. And actually, these these features make uh, the need for type mock even even bigger. So, link isn't a problem for you then? Links, links is uh, is not a problem. No, links is not a problem for us. It uses extension methods. It uses uh, Anonymous types, and it's quite easy to mock. It's quite simple. We had to make a few changes in our code because because of the differences of uh, of the .NET, and uh, they added uh, features there. But uh, we already have a working copy. Man, Richard, this guy's this guy's impenetrable. <laughs> the simplest thing is if if you use what we call the natural mocks, is you just write uh, in the test. This is the link that we're going to mock, and we want to return ten objects. And we define which, what these objects are, and then when we run the code, and that links uh, statement gets hit. It returns those ten objects. So I'm getting the feeling that you're invincible, man. That there's no kind. Is there any kind of situation or object or code that presents a particular challenge to you as the developer of TypeMock to to mock? Yes, 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, now we're getting... Okay. And um, the two big ones are, are mocking fields. Some developers use fields that don't use uh, setters and getters. Oh, properties. sure. And once you use fields, it's quite difficult to, to mock them. Uh, although we do have some uh, mock solutions up. And I'm using it, the pun was intended. We have some spikes. Uh, trying to, to figure out how to how to solve that problem. Uh, of course, not many developers use use properties, but quite a few do, and they find it problematic. And uh, again, if I was really object oriented, I would say don't use fields, use setters and getters. But again, as we, as I'm trying to be a design uh, um, agnostic. Uh, I don't want to say that. I want to try and find a solution which is, is really suitable for these kind of case, so, uh, cases. So particularly, what's the problem with fields for you? The problem for fields is that no method is being called. And so the field could be at some point null. It, could be, it hadn't been initialized ever. And then we get a null point of exception, even though we, we say we want this field to return something. I see. And and you can't just make them properties, can you? Uh, one of the spikes that we're going through is is trying to make them properties. Yeah, uh, that's one way we're looking at. But there are quite a few ways that we're trying. And what if your code is actually that your mocking does reflection on the object and determines what's a field and what's a property? <laughs> then you're kind of screwed, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, yeah the, the, I understand that that point. If if that's the case, that that work, that won't work. So yeah. That's a, that's a good point. I'll tell the guys to stop working now. And uh, another another case is the, all the types from MS Corelib. Oh, MS Corelib, meaning the primitives, right? Yeah, the primitives. There quite, are quite a few uh, types than MS Corelib date time, for example. Hmm. Uh, those, are, those are pieces of code that we don't want to touch right now. We've tried it quite a few times. It's possible. But because they use so extensively all around the system, it causes uh, um, it's very hard to, to know which instances to mark and which which ones not to mark, and it causes uh, undefined problems all over the code. Again, we're, we're looking for solutions in that area. We do have quite a few solutions. Uh, what, why would you need to mock date time, though? I mean, why That's would really you? simple. I have a piece of code, and I want to see that it works in a leap year. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. So how do I how do I isolate my code and, and make sure that it works well uh, in a leap year? So you need to mock the the type itself. You can't mock the code that uh, returns the type. The code to return type is date is date time dot now. Yeah, and you have to mock that. Is what you're saying? Yes, yes. Unless, unless of course somebody designs it to designs a, a delegate that that calls uh, date time dot now. Um, that's easy to mock. But again, we don't. I'm really curious as to to know why you'd need to mock that because uh, I mean if you're trying to if the whole idea is isolation you're trying to provide a mock object that uh, where where you're you're ruling out the possibility that the code behind the code in the object is what's causing the problem wouldn't you want to use the primitives wouldn't you want to use the primitives as much as you can because they, after all they're not going to change there's not a bug in the now method is there Exactly. That's right. There's no bug in now. We don't. We don't. We don't need to, to mock now because there might be a bug there. We just want to test our code in certain scenarios. Yeah. When we when we isolate our code, we're not just isolating it and and, and testing it 
uh, when we test it in isolation, we want the isolated pieces to, to react with our code as well. So the example of daytime is classic. We want our code to react to the, the, the current time and we isolate it because we don't want to be, we don't want to rely on the real now, but we want to fake a, we want to test it in isolation what happens in a leap year. I see. Yeah, I get it now. No pun intended. I get it now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know how I would fix that problem is by changing the system time, you know? That's... Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. But one way is to change the system time. But then I'd have to change it back after all my apps just suddenly blew up, you know? Yeah. Uh, all those things time out and all kinds of backups <laughs> automatically run. And, yeah, exactly. You know, that disaster called your machine. <laughs> and, and then you'd then you run it on the build server. <laughs> yeah, you know there's people out there who are going to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. I did it myself. Yeah. Well, you know, you're running inside of a virtual PC, maybe I can see doing that. I think a mock is safer. I agree. I agree. Okay, there we go. There's a debate out there, and I'd, I'd be interested in your position on this, uh, uh, Ellie, on dependency injection. Should it be used anywhere other than unit testing? I mean, it makes perfect sense for unit testing because of its ability to isolate uh, units of code. But would you ever deploy a DI implementation? Sure, sure. I think I think that the dependency injection pattern is, is, a, is an amazing pattern. It's it's, re- it's a cool pattern. You can actually change objects uh, while running it, and you can write uh, uh, one piece of code, and, and then, uh, so for example, you can have a plugin. Uh, environment using dependency injection and developers can uh, inject their own pieces of uh, add-ins into the, into the code and it's really simple to make and it's really simple, simple to do and, and it's an amazing pattern. The thing is that this pattern is being overused. Oh yeah. It's being overused because it's the only way that you can isolate a code using mock objects, using the objects. And, and this is something that I, that I don't think is, is I don't think it's very clever. I think overusing a pattern is, it's not a silver bullet. It has its, it has its virtues and it's a very strong pattern and I use it myself sometimes, but it's, it's not to be used all over the place. It's, it's, I think it's, it's like what happened with the single pattern. The single pattern became really overused and, and then, uh, people suddenly understood that they're just using it to, be, to, to make all their, with their objects global, it's not really a good pattern to use. There are there are places where it should be used, and dependency injection. There are places where it should be used, but again, we have to let the actual groups decide what is the best place to be used on on, on a business uh, on a business value. What's the business value to use dependency injection? Where should it be used? Uh, where it supports features of the code, not for for testing the code. That's a classic example of um, you know um, training given without any wisdom you know you get the knowledge of how to do a uh, uh a singleton object but then you don't get the you know what are the what are the situations in which this will be required you know you get one example but uh that example might even be useless so maybe that's what we need is uh, i'm still wrestling with what a great example of an implementation of dependency injection is outside of the test environment or this is the best way to implement that code. Got any ideas? Um, no, I haven't really thought about that. I've seen many places where dependency injection 
can help. I'm not sure about the uh, inversion of control containers, uh, where it's just uh, uh, what's really happening there that you're moving all the all the problems of the configuration to an external file or to uh, or to external uh, uh, attributes. But uh, there are places where dependency injection is really important, where you can tell the code, okay, we normally by default use a certain code. We can take a, a logging. A logging could be a good example. We use a default logger. And when we run a program, this is the default logger. Now, anybody who wants to write his own logger can 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 um, write uh, uh, his logger according to this interface and inject it into the code. You can say, okay, now don't use the default logger. Use this logger. And that's dependency injection, and uh, you can use it, and it's really nice. Well, there are other more. I I, I kind of think of dependency injection as something that you you sort of stuff in after the code's already been written, and you sort of give up a certain amount of control that way. Whereas if you're writing the code to you know a provider pat a provider model or something like that, where you can go into a config file and say I want to use this object over that object, you you have you have a little bit more control, don't you? Uh, true. Again, this is the design. Somebody has to think about the design and 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 the maintenance sort of, of these. Um, sometimes writing it by code is better than you know that a developer he was the one who decided to to do, to change that logger to to a different logger. Sometimes using it in some external uh, code, there is an ease because you don't just compile or debug or link uh, your code, but then somebody can just. Uh, write something else and nobody understands why it happens and it's really hard to, to find it because even if you go and you debug the whole program it's it's somewhat completely different it's out in the configuration file and this is some this is somebody some the architects have to think about like, where's the best place and there's sometimes it, there's a business or a reason to have it in a configuration file and there might be a, a nice editor to edit this uh, configuration file and sometimes it, it has to it should be done by code uh, this is something that uh, each each application has to decide uh, what's best for, for its business. Okay, now let's talk about some of the cooler features of uh, TypeMock.net. I think we sort of beat the mock objects thing to death now. We can uh, get it because TypeMocks.net has some great features like tracing. Um, talk about some of these things here. Okay, um, so I think let's start with the tracing. I think that's, that's a really cool feature that uh, most of people don't know about it, but Basically, one of the one of the biggest things that happens, we find one of the biggest things, biggest problems of writing these uh, isolation isolation parts of the code, is that uh, developers uh, somehow didn't understand how the code is working because when they debug through the code, they see that something is being called, but it, at the end, it doesn't. It's not really called, and, and that's kind of confusing. And that's why we have the trace, and the tracer uh, can show us. For each of our isolated parts, uh, which iso- what isolations we expected, and, and what is- what parts of the code were called that were not isolated, and we can actually we can see how the flow of, uh, of the code uh, uh, works through these uh, isolated parts. And this is really important when we're talking about multiple instance objects. Let me take an example of a piece of code that does five news. It creates five instances, and, and we want all these instances to be. Uh, to be multiple launch, you want each one to behave in a different manner. And in TypeMock, it's quite simple to do this, and you can do this. But uh, when you try, when you're trying to understand why the code doesn't work, or or maybe there's a mistake in in the isolated part in, in how we define isolation, that's when the tracer uh, comes really handy, and you can actually see exactly um, the flow of the code and the flow of the, of the isolated mocks. Uh, 
that we call natural mox. Uh, natural mox works. Did you say natural mox? Natural. Natural. Okay. Natural mox works by actually calling by you could, natural mox works in a different manner. It works in the recording mode. We have a recording block, and in that recording block, we write down we record all the pieces of code that we want to isolate, or we can recall. We can record a message box show, and then next time, the next time the message box show is hit somewhere in the code, it doesn't really show the message box. Right. Uh, which is quite cool. To, uh, and uh, and you can write. We can have what's called chained natural mocks. You can write a whole chain of calls, a dot b dot c dot e, and all next time a dot b dot c dot e is called, then all those those are going to be mocked. And uh, there's features like, uh, like I said beforehand, uh, mul- uh, multiple threading features. Something it's really difficult to test multiple threads because you can start up the thread, but you don't know when that thread's going to finish. Ah, right. And, and Typebook has, has, a, has a really cool way to to test these threads, and it works quite simply. What you say is, okay, uh, I'm going to define one method that once that's called, I know that the test has has finished, that the thread has finished. So let's say at the end of the thread, we call something called, uh, let's say, log, because I like to use this log all the time. Let's say at the end of the thread, we use log. So we can say, okay, let's uh, let's mock this log. We want this, we're expecting this log to be called. Now run our tests and and start up our threads and let the threads go. And once that log is called, we get, we can, we know that our tests are finished and we can test our environment. We can test that our, that our tests actually work. And that's, that's pretty cool because beforehand you have to either Wait for a certain amount of time and, and then check the and check the um, the values, or you had to, in some kind of way, get the, the thread ID and 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 wait and join in that thread ID, which, which can become complex in code, and you have to be, you have to change the pattern of the code, design of the code, in order to do that. Yeah, I was going to say the whole multi-threading thing in general is just screaming for mock objects. I mean, it'd be very difficult to do unit tests with with threading. In general, I'm thinking, you know, just off the top of my head here, how I would go about doing that, especially if you've got, I mean, you know, you've mocking up a an asynchronous process has got to be kind of difficult in general. And just then throw three or four threads into the equation and start dealing with how you're going to test them finishing in different orders, or one of them hanging and not returning. So we have we have solutions for that. We basically when we when you test with these threads, um, you give some kind of a timeout. And uh, the default time is five seconds. And if the test has been finished in five seconds, then it fails, and the developer can now uh, run this test in, in debug mode and try to see why um, this test failed, why why the thread didn't finish, or why it wasn't called. Um, so there's solutions for these uh, for those kind of uh, issues. Uh, we also have uh, what's called uh, tester test decorators, which is, is also quite kind of cool. Uh, we actually it's actually on the community version too, and it works in like, a, like works something like MBUnit. MBUnit has a way of extending um, decorators on the test methods in order to add the uh, different uh, um, features to the test. And using Tatmok, you can very very simply add your own test decorator, and that works in all the testing frameworks. It works in MBUnit, MBUnit, and in MS Test, and you can simply write. Uh, a decorator, for example, that uh, uh, sets uh, the license of, uh, of uh, the software you want to test, and then you can run it under that license, uh, or you can change, uh, uh, you can add different features and different
different, uh, um, you can add more features into the testing uh, framework. And, and it's, again, it's test framework the agnostic. It works for all uh, test frameworks, and you can easily change from MB unit to MS test if you want to. That's great. Uh, Ellie, we're coming to the end of the show. Uh, real quick, what's coming up in the next version of TypeMock that people are excited about? In the next version of TypeMock, uh, we have support for ORCAS. We have support for uh, extension methods, links, D-links, um, anonymous types, um, and quite a few. Uh, but that's the main that's the main feature that's coming up soon. We have a, a few little uh, gimmicks up our sleeve that uh, Tracer uh, looks much nicer, and uh, we fixed uh, quite a few bugs out there. And better support for uh, for Lambda expressions. You can decide what to put. And um, and uh, we have quite a few. Uh, we're working on a few other tools that will also help uh, make the unit testing much much simpler. And you have a, a type mock site uh, for a website for type mock. Yeah, we have a, web, a website for type mock. It's at www.typemock.com. Oh, how how fortuitous! And uh, there's a lot a lot of information there. Uh, there's a community where you know, questions can be asked, um, and uh, you can download the product. You can you can browse and, and see the product. You can contact us and ask questions. And I see that um, the enterprise edition, which is the best value, is three seventy nine. Professional edition is two seventy nine US. That's right. That's the prices. That's the current prices. Okay, that's that's pretty good. Yep. Well, this has been a great show. It's been a, a, a good talk about uh, unit testing and mock objects in general and, and also about type mock. Great stuff. And I wish you continued success, sir. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks again for being on the show, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 